Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence and Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome to the show, Carlos. Good to be back. Glad to have you here, and today we have a special episode. Yes, we do. Today we're going to be talking about Carlos's new book, They Flew, A History of the Impossible. And before we get started with that, I just wanted to remind everyone, if you're enjoying the show, if this is your first time or you've been listening to the show, you can do us a favor by clicking the like button and subscribing to the show. That'll help us get the news out to more people and more people get to enjoy listening to Carlos and his great insight into Christian mysticism. I also want to remind everybody that in the show notes, you'll find a link where you can purchase the book. So if you haven't gotten a copy yet, make sure you click and get yourself one. Today, we're going to be talking about that book, Carlos. So I wanted to ask you a few questions and then you can give us some information. And obviously, yeah. don't give too much or people won't buy the book. Oh, no, no. I have no spoilers. <laughs> no spoilers of any kind. But to start off, I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, sometimes books end up coming out of a series of inspirations, but I can pinpoint this one exactly, the moment. I don't remember the date, but it was early June 1983, so 40 years ago. I was in Spain, and uh, I was traveling with a friend of mine, and we went to Avila, and we were visiting the convent of the Incarnation, which was Teresa of Avila's first convent. And we were getting the standard tour along with a number of other people. And this very young tour guide was pointing out things in the convent, such as, you know, here is uh, the kitchen where Teresa cooked. Here's the refectory or the dining area, the eating area where all the nuns had their meals. Uh, here is the staircase where Teresa fell and broke her arm. And of course, minutes, some minutes elapse between these <laughs> as you walk from room to room. And then we get to the spot, which is the spot where in Spanish is known as the locutorio. It's where nuns spoke to people in the outside world because they were cloistered. They weren't supposed to leave the convent. So basically, it was a lot like what you, know, what you see on TV when, when you see reenactment of a prisoner being visited by someone except it wasn't a glass partition. In this case, it was a metal grill. Uh, so almost, you know, of course, like an old-fashioned prison, you know, with bars. That's how they spoke to the outside world. So we're in the locutorio, and the tour guide says, and here, here's a spot where uh, St. Teresa and St. John of the Cross levitated together for the very first time. Oh, excuse me? It's like something went off in my head. Something was just not right because this was very different from the staircase. This is very different from the kitchen. This is very different from all the other objects and places she had been mentioning. This was like, you know, to her, this, this was a fact. And it started me thinking. I, of course, I knew about levitation because you know, I've been reading about it. Bits and pieces, not, you know, something I would encounter every now and then. But this, being there in that spot and thinking that this could have happened there. It just started me on a very long road, very long and full of detours to work on this issue of 
impossible miracles. And I did a little bit every now and then. Of course, I wrote other books in between. I wrote most of it actually between 2020 and 2022. So it's a COVID book. Most of the writing was done. I was on research leave spring semester 2021. So most of it was written that spring semester plus the following summer. It all came together. But of course, it came together that quickly because I had done a lot of research before in bits and pieces. And I had all the pieces, kind of like when you buy a puzzle in a box with all the pieces. I had most of the pieces already. So it came together fairly quickly. So I guess you could say this is a book you've been carrying around in your head for the past 40 years. Yes, absolutely. And I would say that another turning point, somewhat unusual, I suppose, this would be 1995, 1996. So we're already talking about, you know, 12 years later, at least. And I was thinking about miracles because I had worked on the subject of miracles in my second book, From Madrid to Purgatory, which came out in 95, 96. And I had a few chapters there on the miracles that surrounded St. Teresa's death, including the miracle of her incorruptible corpse. So I was thinking about, you know, miracles in that period, my period, 16th, 17th century. I was finding very little literature on it. And I started thinking in bigger terms, not just, you know, St. Teresa's levitations, but the levitation in general. How unusual is it? Or how often is it recorded? So on and so forth. And then here's the funny part that might seem odd. I went to see the movie Pulp Fiction. And there's a scene in there where a gun goes off and bullets fly, but there's no one killed. And then uh, two of the characters start arguing over whether that was a miracle or not. <laughs> and it's a pretty heated discussion with plenty of four-letter words in it, which I thought was pretty funny. And one of the characters is, is a well, the two characters involved are gangsters. But one of them decides to give up the gangster life after this quote-unquote miracle happens. He's convinced it's a miracle. The other guy doesn't think it's a miracle. But the one who gives up, played by Samuel Jackson, Samuel L. Jackson, he decides to quit gangsterism and walk the earth. <laughs> and that made more pieces fit together uh, about this project. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll start on this for sure. And, and I did. Several trips to Spain, the archives gathering things, trying to find out where sources were. And next thing I know, it's 2019. I'm putting the pieces together. Yeah, this is what I'll do when I'm on research leave in spring 21. And that's what I did. And thank God it all came together very nicely. Despite some setbacks, such as the fact libraries and archives were closed <laughs> during COVID. And I'm laughing because here I thought, oh boy, Here's a delay. But as it turned out, many, and I stress many, of the printed texts that I needed, which had been printed in the 17th or 18th century, had been digitized, and they were available online. So, of course, it's, it's not a miracle in the sense of a religious miracle, but it was a, for, the, you know, for, for someone my age who did research before there were computers. This is just and before there was an internet, this is just like miraculous. You know, it's like I suppose what my parents must have felt like the first time they saw a television 
where my father actually was old enough to remember the first radio broadcast he ever heard and how uh, everybody gathered at the porch of his house to hear this machine. And even better, not only were the texts uh, digitized, my library, the Yale Library, because of COVID, you could request books online and they would pack them up and mail them to your house. (laughs) So I never had to leave my plague bunker to write this book. And just about everything I needed, I found. So there's a technologically miraculous dimension to this book, but I think there's also another miraculous dimension, which is that I waited nearly 40 years to write this book because if I had written it when I was much younger and knew much less, it wouldn't have been the same. Well, despite the fact that it took you 40 years, uh, the way you're describing it, it seems like it came together pretty easily. Did you find anything Was there anything that was difficult about writing this book? Well, not really, not in terms of the writing itself, but I had surgery that spring on my ankle. I I had some torn ligaments and I was in excruciating pain for about three months and I I couldn't walk. I had to use crutches or one of those little uh, little scooters you put your, your leg on. So that was difficult, working through the pain. But the book actually helped me cope with the pain. It helped Perhaps. me immensely. It would just take my mind off of it. Perhaps that was another miracle. I, I count it as one. Now, this book is dealing with supernatural, mystical phenomena. It's completely outside the realm of scientific research. You're going off of things that took place hundreds of years ago in some cases and are difficult to really prove. Now, From a scholarly perspective, how did you balance that in the book? Well, it was a thorny problem, and it continues to be a thorny problem for anyone who deals with this issue, because as I say in the book more than once, this is a subject that if you work on it, you end up with more questions than answers, right? Because you can't prove it. All we have, basically, to get to the basic issue. We don't have any film of these levitators or the bilocators. We don't have any visual proof. All we have is the testimony of people who witnessed these events. So the testimonies are the only facts you have, but they are facts. I mean, it's a fact we have hundreds, in some cases, thousands of testimonies. So that's a fact. The question then that, you know, most historians have. I'll say 99.9% who have been trained professionally, you know, in a doctoral program. We've all been taught that the only way that you can deal with this fact, the testimonies, is to analyze the social, political, economic, and perhaps even the artistic dimension of those testimonies. And in the study of religion, there's an approach, a social scientific approach to phenomena of this sort. And in that approach, you study and analyze what function or purpose this phenomenon might serve. Because, of course, you're assuming that since you can't prove that it happened, it couldn't have happened. But you're still stuck with the enigma of the testimonies. So this is called functionalism, and it's very common in the study of religion. 
with functionalism, you're only dealing with the social reality of the testimonies. Another way that historians like to talk about the proper approach, right? Because this is considered the only truly rational and scientific way of looking at these things is you put brackets around the question, did this really happen? You don't touch it. You don't touch that question because you can't prove it. But I chose to touch the question because I think that's the most interesting part of all of these phenomena. And not only interesting, but significant and important. If these events really happened, and, and of course, people can dissect the term real or really in a million different ways. I mean, it happened the same way anything in anyone's daily life happens, right? Oh, I fell down the stairs. Well, that's a fact. And it was seen by three or four other people, but you don't need to put brackets around that, right? But something that's supernatural, something that is anomalous, unusual, out of the ordinary, you've got to put brackets around it and not ask the question. And social scientists who study religion have had various ways of dealing with this, right? And this is what anthropologists do when they go to some other place other than their culture to study that culture and, and some other religion. Is they always bracket this question. So this is what the social scientific study of religion is all about and the writing of the history of religion also. But I think that that is uh, very limiting and unwise to put aside the question, the reality of these events. And back in the early 20th century, there was a scholar, actually a psychologist at Harvard, William James, brother of a very famous novelist, Henry James. William James had a term I loved the minute I saw it, and his, his term was wild facts. Because James, you know, at the turn of the last century, he was very interested in psychic phenomena as a psychologist. And actually, he wrote an entire book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which is an amazing book for something that was written over 100 years ago. But what did uh, he mean by wild facts? These are facts you can't, you can't handle, but history is full of them, right? And daily life, sometimes, depending where you are and what your culture is, is full of wild facts that can't be bracketed. But I guess the most basic concept there of something that can't be corralled, right? It can't be put into a pigeonhole it is, that's what miracles are. And they puzzle people. Now, healing miracles are one thing because healing miracles happen all the time. And healing miracles happen to people who are not religious. Here's where I'm going with this, okay? We think that we have a pretty good handle on the physical world in terms of our knowledge, medical and scientific. And we do know a lot. But we don't know everything, which is why medical miracles happen all the time. Doctors uh, give someone less than 1% chance of surviving, and they do. And actually, even more amazing medical miracles happen, not just instant cures. But I know one case where a girl who had been born deaf and had no nerves, so therefore she had no equipment with which to hear. And this was a religious miracle. It's one of the miracles that was brought forward for St. Mary Elizabeth Seton, one of the first Americans to be canonized. At some point in her childhood, this girl's nerves suddenly appeared. And I had a chance to look at this case because a student here 
at Yale had brought back these documents from the Vatican. Photocopies. They're all in English, too. Easy for him to read. <laughs> Easy for me to read. Yeah, her ner- nerves suddenly regenerated, and all the doctors who were quizzed said, we have no explanation. This never happens. There's a wild fact. Now, just pushing forward a little bit with this kind of logic, if we don't understand how nerves can regenerate suddenly in a human being, you can prove the nerves are there. That's still different from, oh, this person levitated. But it still gives you a perspective on the limit of human knowledge, no matter how advanced we think we are. I just find it humorous that scholars and, and, and a lot of the scientific community, when they come across a, a miracle that's not associated with a, that does not have a religious aspect to it, they accept it and marvel at it. And like, you know, one day we're going to find out how this happened, but they accept it. Mm-hmm. But the moment you attach any religious aspect to it, they just completely reject it. That's it right. never happens. No, it never happened. And it's not consistent. It's, it's obvious it's being rejected because if you accept it, you're accepting a religious explanation. That's right. And there's the problem that there's a dual standard, two sets of standards for judging whether something is possible or not. And this is why, you know, I I chose to call this a history of the impossible, right? Because it's something that is not supposed to happen, but there are records of it happening. And you have witnesses that saw it happen. Right. Now, you divided this book into three sections. Can you explain that for us? Well, yeah. You know, it's a complex subject. Actually, the core issue of whether this happened or not, that is complicated enough. But... The history of these two impossible miracles, levitation and bilocation, the history of what happened in the 16th, 17th, and even into the 18th century is also full of paradoxes, asymmetries, I mean, things that are not equally balanced. And they're also filled with twists and turns that are unexpected. The twists and turns are not impossible, but they're just strange and weird. So the first part of the book is on levitation. So I've got a history of levitation up to the 16th century and beyond. And then uh, specific cases, two in particular, St. Teresa of Avila and St. Joseph Cupertino. So I've got one section on levitation. Second section is on bilocation. So a brief history of this phenomenon in history. And then a specific case, Sor Maria de Agreda. We've spoken about her before. She's the nun who supposedly bilocated from Spain to present-day Texas and New Mexico to serve as a missionary to convert the Humano people into Christians. And that's a complicated case. Bilocation is even harder to deal with than levitation. So having dealt with these two miracles, the third part is on the really complicated dimension of this in the 16th and 17th century. So I deal with individuals who claimed to levitate or bilocate. And in some cases, there were plenty of testimonies 
for their levitations and bilocations. But for various reasons, after being investigated by church authorities, were discovered to be frauds. Or there was such a high suspicion of fraud that they were kind of like squirreled away, taken away, taken out of sight. And the reason that this is part of the book is that you can't ignore. I mean, if you're going to be, you know, looking at the facts, this is a fact. There were frauds. And some of these frauds actually convinced people through trickery that they were levitating and bilocating. But then in this third part of the book, there's also something else. It's the fact that these two phenomena were not only ascribed to God, but also to the devil. So there's a dark side to this. And the dark side gets even more complicated when you throw in the fact that it's during this time period that the Protestant Reformation took place. And Protestants rejected miracles. I think we've spoken about this before. The scholarly term, and also the theological term, for this Protestant belief is the cessation of miracles. Miracles ceased around the year 100. That's what all the major Protestant reformers argued. When the last of the 12 apostles died, and that was believed to be John, around the year 100, no more miracles. We don't need them anymore. And the reason for that, why? What was the argument? Why weren't miracles needed? Because the church was already established. And that was an even greater miracle, that people converted to Christianity and the church flourished and grew without miracles. This is very modern kind of thinking, and it's truly modern. But there was a a polemical edge to this argument about miracles having ceased. And this was the fact that the Catholic Church claimed that its many, many miracles were the strongest proof of the fact that it was the true church. So there's a polemical edge to the cessation of miracles theology. It allowed Protestants to say that all of the miracles claimed by the Catholic Church were either fraudulent or, and here's where we really go down a deep hole, the work of the devil. So curiously enough, Throughout the 16th and 17th century, although Protestants would not think of God as performing miracles anymore, they had no trouble, absolutely none, thinking that the devil did perform these wonders. Except if the devil is performing them, they're called tricks, not miracles. So the bottom line is, and this is a very odd, this is when I I spoke of asymmetry, lack of symmetry in belief. The curious fact, and this is another fact, is that in the 16th and 17th century, you've got Catholics believing that levitation and bilocation are indeed possible, and they can be either from God or from the devil. Whereas Protestants think that levitation and bilocation do happen those two phenomena are possible and they do happen. But when they do, it can only be from the devil. So that's what I deal with in the third part of the book, this complicated fact. And I keep emphasizing that because nobody can doubt that these were Protestant beliefs because they were central 
to the persecution of witches. Witches were believed to be able to fly. And Halloween is a perfect example of survival of this in our culture. Just today, I passed a, a neighbor's tree where they had one of these witches plastered to the tree like she was flying on her broom and crashed into the tree and is stuck to the tree. 17th century was a century of witch hunts, and both Catholics and Protestants persecuted witches with equal ferocity. And we still don't know exact number of witches that were killed, but it's, of course, in the thousands. And the evidence brought forward in witch trials for witches flying or, well, in some cases, bilocating or, or transvection is, is a term often used in, in witch trials. This means that you go from point A to point B instantly. That was that witches were believed to be able to do this because of their pacts with the devil. What a century. In your research, which I'm sure you've researched witch trials and read the documents and regarding those trials, did you ever come across a case where someone was accused of being a witch, convicted of being a witch, and put to death for that, who claimed to be Christian and were having Christian visions or, or mystical experiences? Oh, no, I have not. I mean, well, let me let me back up. Yeah, all these people were Christians. All of them were baptized Christians. Right, but what I'm saying yeah. is that their defense was, no, I'm not a witch. I'm, been, I was praying to to God, and I had this mystical experience. No, I have not. But you know what? There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of witch trials. There's one in Trier in Germany, which is German speaking city. In Trier, those who were hauled in, suspected of witchcraft because someone had denounced them. Most of them were tortured to extract information from them. And stands the reason. Somebody's being tortured. They're quite likely to say whatever the torturers want to hear so that the torture will stop. And actually, this is where we, where we get the, the euphemism, witch hunt here in the United States, which has political overtones. And it's usually it usually pops up when the anti-communist hearings of Senator McCarthy in the 1950s took place. It's often called a witch hunt. Why? Because people named names, right? And that's all it took to get you under suspicion of being a communist. Same thing with these witch trials. Oh, so-and-so is a witch. Yeah, well, let's bring her in. Or bring him in because they were male witches too. But I also have, in the case of these frauds who claim to levitate and bilocate, one nun who was regarded a living saint. Everyone thought she was a living saint, except for a few people who suspected her of not being one. And then it was discovered that, well, not discovered, she confessed that she had made a pact with the devil. And that it was the devil who was doing all this stuff. There's another nun in the book who was also considered a living saint, but was discovered to be a total fraud. She used these special high heel shoes under her habit to make it seem that she was levitating, and people believed her. She also painted the stigmata on her hands and feet and side. 
Anyway, they discovered her tricks. But yeah, there was one nun, the nun of Cordoba. She lived in the city of Cordoba. Yes, very famous case, 16th century. She confessed that everything she had done, all her wild facts, were the work of the devil. So I think it's important to put these all these different things together. You know, the levitators and bilocators who are judged to be legitimate and those who are not judged to be legitimate because it gives you a, a glimpse of the process by which testimonies are sorted out. And the individual who is levitating or bilocating is questioned. And in some cases, what their answers are to these questions. Well, I think as we've progressed through this year, the first year of our podcast, I think it's safe to say mysticism is nothing if not a very complex subject. So it makes perfect sense that it wouldn't be a single, single dimensional. There's a lot of dimensions to it, not just in the types of mysticism, but in the types of people, their motivations, who was behind it. So it would make perfect sense that this would be an important part of the book. Now, the title of the book makes pretty obvious, They Flew, that levitation is one of the main topics or one of the main mystical phenomena that you discuss. And we've also talked about bilocation. Are there other physical phenomena that you talk about in the book? Well, these are the two main focus. You know, levitation itself, in some cases, is accompanied by glowing the body and the face glow so brightly that they light up an entire dark room in some reports. And then, you know, levitation and bilocation in all cases studied in this book are held to be a side effect of mystical ecstasy. So mystical ecstasy itself is, is also a subject because it's the central subject, actually. None of these individuals who were deemed to be legitimate levitators by legitimate, I mean, it was God making them levitate. None of the, these individuals could bring on these levitations at will. As a matter of fact, they always came odd moments, unexpected ways. So you have that dimension to these phenomena, that they are a suspension of the normal, a suspension of the mundane. For instance, Maria de Agreda, the nun who bilocated to North America, all of her bilocations that she claimed, took place while she was in ecstasy back in Agreda in Spain. And not just in ecstasy, but levitating in ecstasy. So she was at the very same time levitating and bilocating. Bonus points, I guess one would say. Wow, yes. So I tried to keep my focus on just the bilocating and levitating not to deal with the glow. And there are sometimes healings involved. And there's mention made of some of these other physical phenomena that we discussed in an earlier podcast. But the reason I don't focus on them is that I wanted to focus on two kinds of miracles that are just outrageously impossible. <laughs> and also two kinds of miracles that are not only outrageously impossible, but for which there is a lot of testimony. I admit in the book, bilocation is a bit fuzzier kind of impossible miracle than levitation. But I chose St. Teresa of Avila and Joseph Cupertino because so many of their 
levitations took place in a manner where it would have been impossible in the 16th and 17th century to fake it the way a magician can fake levitation on stage nowadays, especially levitations that take place outdoors or indoors in places with very high roofs. The person goes all the way up to the roof. Or as in the case of St. Teresa, because she ordered her nuns to try to hold her down. And I, again, I said, I promised no spoilers, but this is a skirting close to a spoiler. In the case of St. Teresa, she ordered her nuns to hold her down, but they could not. And we have so many descriptions of the efforts being made to hold her down or to pull her down once she had gone up. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler because if it is, we already spoiled it when we had our our two part. That's right. Our two parts on Saint Teresa of Avila. Right. I just didn't want to break a promise. <laughs> I know. In the book, you also delve into malevolent mysticism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, these are the folk who are associated with the devil, and you know, it's it's not just the fact that they are fooling people, but it's it's the fact that when they are doing so, they are placing others in peril, spiritually and sometimes morally. So, for instance, in the case of the one nun I mentioned, who was known as the nun of Lisbon, it's much easier to remember than her religious name, the nun of Lisbon, the one who faked her stigmata, and so on and so forth, faked everything, and confessed later, yes, I faked everything. She was regarded as a saint. People were venerating her as a living saint. And the nuns in the convent were also set up in a very, very strict hierarchy of the nuns who were her closest devotees or venerators and those who weren't, who ended up being treated very poorly by those who were at the top of the hierarchy. And actually, that's what undid her. That's what finally just made everybody realize this woman might be faking it is this division within the convent and the way in which she was being exalted to this very high place of being regarded a, a living saint, not just by nuns in the convent, but everyone, including royalty and nobles. So the attempt to deceive others is not the same thing when I say malevolent. It's not the same thing as, for instance, a witch or sorcerer who puts a curse on someone. That's a different kind of malevolence. The malevolence here is in faking the sacred, faking the holy. As a matter of fact, the Inquisition in Spain had a term for people like this, for these fakers. The crime that they were committing was called inventing the sacred. And there's a wonderful book with that title, Inventing the Sacred, which maybe our readers can check out if they're interested in this. It's a very expensive book, though. But it's a wonderful book. There were fakers, no doubt about it. But they're an important part of the story. Staying on the topic of fakers and fraudulent mystics, as we discussed at the beginning, the whole idea of mysticism, the levitations, the bilocations, they defy logic, they defy science, they defy everything we know about the physical world. But you do talk a lot about fraudulent mystics in the book. Do you feel that could cast doubt on the ones that are authentic? 
Well, yeah, of course, there's always a shadow of a doubt when you have fakers who have managed to convince others that it's real. Of course, yeah. That goes for people who are not professional historians as well as for professional historians. You have to always have that shadow of a doubt hanging over the subject. But I think that at the very same time, the fact that they were discovered and the fact that they were not certified as, you know, genuinely divine or were actually discovered to be dealing with the devil shows that there were these testimonies that we've been talking about come from a system that has rules in place for determining what is legitimately divine and true by the standards set in place within this society. These wild facts become social facts. Let me explain what I mean by that. So I'm using a term from William James, wild facts. This other term, social fact, comes from another early sociologist, Ernst Trilch. A social fact is a fact that everyone takes for granted, or a fact that it is commonly agreed within a society, the fact cannot be challenged. So a social fact is a belief that is held so, so dearly and so tightly, or perhaps so much enforced by political authorities, that it is a fact, even though it's only a belief. So an example, for instance, from our day that everyone could relate to, for us here in the United States, it's a social fact right now that there are certain words that you cannot say because they're so horrible that if you say them, you instantly become an evil person. That's a social fact. And there are other social facts that Americans hold dear. Freedom of speech, that's a social fact. And of course, it, it creates debate, dissent, problems. You can't yell fire in a crowded theater is the perfect example, right? There uh, are limits to free speech. But it's still a fact. It's a social fact. So the wild fact of levitation becomes a social fact in the Catholic Church, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, and 21st century. It is a social fact in Catholicism. In the same way that flying witches were a social fact throughout much of the 16th and 17th century. And the process of, of something becoming a social fact is very similar to the process of something losing its status as a social fact. So, for instance, 17th, 18th, 19th century with the rise of skepticism about religion and of rapid developments in natural science and medicine. The social fact of levitation began to wane and is still pretty much in wane. It hasn't disappeared, but it's no longer a social fact. So the fact that there are fakers who are caught means that there is a way for these societies, these cultures, these people to discern the difference between the real thing and the fake thing in the same way that an expert can determine whether a piece of paper currency is real or forged. Or some paintings, for instance, who everyone thinks, oh, this must be a Rubens. I'm just using him off the top of my head. Could be any artist. Oh, this is a genuine Van Gogh. This is a genuine Picasso. And then you find out decades later or centuries later, no, it's that. it was a fake. That actually heightens the value of, of the real ones when there are forgeries and fakes and, and counterfeit 
that enhances and keeps the value of the real ones in place. Using the same analogy that you use with paintings, you can almost say that these fakers, these fraudulent mystics, they're doing it because they want to do what somebody else did. Yes, because they know there's a good payoff. <laughs> right, but it's it's something that they have seen or have heard or right. or feel that it does exist. So I'm going to copy that and, right. and try to capitalize on it for my personal gain. That's right, yes. And the nun of Lisbon was so expert at painting the stigmata that she fooled many, many experts. But you see, she also had, and here's a little detail, right? Then this book is full of this kinds of details. She was so deceitful and also at the very same time regarded as so holy. She got away with the following trick. When they decided to examine her stigmata, several times her superiors showed up, tried to actually closely examine the palms of her hands and her feet. And she would start moaning and crying, oh, the pain, the pain, oh, please stop it, oh. And then, of course, immediately they backed away. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Until finally uh, a superior came who um, refused to fall for her crying and pleading to stop. And he just scrubbed really hard and the paint came off. And then she confessed. She had a good game going, but she couldn't keep oh, it. she couldn't keep it going forever. No, no. And you have to wonder, too. I mean, I know our listeners are probably thinking the same thing. You have to wonder, well, how many fakers got away with it? We don't know. Because I'm dealing in this book with cases that are very well known and were very well known in their day. What I found is I dug around the cases of these very famous saints or famous fakers is that there, there's this whole ocean of mystics and would-be mystics out there for whom there is little or no record. And who knows how many of them actually did these things and nobody ever wrote it down or it never got out of the village they were living in yes. and we'll never know about it. But we've talked a lot about the levitations and bilocations that took place the 16th century, 15th century, 14th century. What about in our day? Are there cases of levitation and bilocations that you've come across? There are two 20th century bilocators and levitators who are as extreme as the ones from earlier times. One of them is very well known among Catholics and is actually a canonized saint. It's Padre Pio Pietrucina. Now, Saint Pio, although I think people still call him Saint Padre Pio, because he was so well-known. Extreme bilocator, levitator, had the stigmata. That's, what I, I think, what he's best known for. Who also had some of these other gifts, such as being able to read people's minds. He died in 1968. He was born in the late 19th century, lived till 1968. I remember hearing stories about Padre Pio when I was a child. I thought he was very scary. Because, you know, he had this stigmata, oh my God, oh, it's like a monster. Oh. But there's this nun, French nun, who is not very well known in the United States. And almost everything has been written about her has yet to be translated from French. So she's not very well known. Uh, her name was Yvonne Aimé de Malestroit. There's this town, Malestroit. 
in France, it's where her convent was. And she levitated, she bilocated in extreme ways, and uh, died as uh, she was setting off to do mission work in Africa in 1951. She was still relatively young. But by that time, she had accomplished a great deal because she not only had mystical experiences and went into ecstasies and had the stigmata and levitated during the German occupation of France in the Second World War. There are numerous reports, incredibly numerous reports, of her visiting prisoners in jails and concentration camps. And even some reports of her helping prisoners escape. So this is already, I'm sure, sounding to some of our listeners as totally fantastic. But here's what I love best about this nun, is that, okay, yes, she's levitating, bilocating. She even, on one occasion, bilocated to a priest who was in the Paris metro. (laughs) That's the subway. But that bilocation took place when she had been hauled in by the Gestapo and was being tortured. And she went to this priest to say, please, 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 you know, pray for me. I really need your prayer. I mean, I'm, I'm in a very bad place. Why did the Gestapo haul her in? Certainly not for her bilocations or levitations. No, they hauled her in because they suspected that she was helping French resistance fighters and downed airline pilots from the Allies. Americans, British, Australians. And why did they suspect her? Because she was doing that. She helped a great number of resistance fighters and downed Allied pilots escape from Nazi-occupied France, sometimes by dressing them as nuns. (laughs) At the end of the war, she got five medals for her heroic valor including the two highest medals any French person can get, the Légion d'honneur in the Croix de Guerre. And one of those medals was pinned on her by General de Gaulle, future president of France. Well, if our listeners want to hear the whole story, they should buy the book. I wanted to ask you one last question. It's the least scholarly one. What's your favorite part of this book? Ah, you know, it's like asking a parent, Who's their favorite child? But I have to say that, you know, it was a joy to work on Joseph of Cupertino because he's so extreme. He's just so utterly, utterly, mystifyingly extreme. And some of the stories about his levitations are funny. Some are very tragic. But he's such a character. I mean, if you want, let, let's say that Joseph Cupertino was a fictional character. He would be a very, very complex, but very entertaining fictional character, which he is not. Well, I can say that I've really enjoyed your book, and I'm sure our listeners, if they get their hands on a copy, are going to enjoy it as well. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a link where you can purchase the book in our show notes. So if you're interested... Please go and purchase a book. And as far as I know, we still have a special price on it. So take advantage of it and learn more about levitations and bilocation and the history of the impossible. This has been fun, Carlos, talking about the book. And going on to the next episode, what do you have for us? 
Okay, well, well, next time, why don't we uh, stay with Joseph of Cupertino, since there are so many interesting details about his mysticism. He didn't write much. That's the thing. Here's a mystic who's not known as a mystic for his texts. He's known as a mystic because of his ecstasies. So, very different from all the mystics we've discussed before. Well, that sounds like a great episode, and I'm looking forward to it. Well, I am too. Thank you again, Carlos. And until the next time, thank you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.